You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we come by your Spirit and we come in the name of your Son, who is the King of all kings and to whom belongs all majesty and authority and glory. And God, I pray right now that as your word is opened, I pray for strength and weakness. I pray for power and clarity and authority as your word is proclaimed, Lord. Authority that doesn't lie in the messenger, but authority that lies in the message, God. And so, Lord, we believe that your word is alive, that it's living and active. And so we pray, God, that it would be spoken with faith, that it would be heard and received with faith. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. Open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now. They'll put a Bible in your hand. Just raise your hand or holler at them. I want to talk to you today about failure. Uh, hashtag fail, hashtag epic fail. You know, failure is something, something we joke about sort of all the time. It's something we, we like to point the finger at other people or, or do funny things with memes on, on, on social media. But I, I want to get kind of personal. I want to talk about uh, epic failures or significant failures in your life. Maybe something that happened recently, maybe something that happened in the, uh, in the past. If you're not thinking of something, that's a problem. Uh, because a failure is, is really sort of a part of being human. Um, when it comes to failure, it's not a question of if I fail, it's a question of when I will fail. And because when it comes to failure, it's not a question of if or when, then how we respond when we fail is of utmost importance. It's absolutely crucial that we respond properly to our failure because we know it's going to come. And some of us are here today. And we don't know how to, how to respond to failure. There's things that, areas in which we failed recently or in our past and we have not responded rightly. We don't know what to do with our failures. Well, today in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 14 and 15, we're going to look at three chapters we're going to look at three failures, three ways in which King Saul failed. Failed at being the kind of king that the people were searching for. And so the search, after we get to chapter 15, we're going to see that the search is going to go on as we continue in this series, searching for a king. So we start in chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Now, I just read there that it says Saul was one year old, or he lived for one year when he became king and then reigned uh, for two years. That doesn't sound quite right. Some of you are also reading in your Bible and there's an ellipsis. There's, there's three dots there or there's a, there's a different uh, number there. Well, while we're on the topic of failure, we, we need to understand, well, did, did, did God's word fail in, in telling us a Saul's age here? So I, I want to be absolutely clear. This came up in uh, chapter 6, verse 19. There was a, an instance where some of our Bibles said 70 men, and then other Bibles said 70 and 50,000 men. And, and 
We believe that the Bible is God's word. And because God is a God of truth, and because God is a God of holiness and purity, we believe that his word is a word of truth. We believe that the Bible is entirely truthful and reliable in all that it affirms in the original manuscripts. That when 1 Samuel was first written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there were absolutely no errors. It was inerrant in its original form. And then from that original form, it had been copied multiple times, multiple times. And in chapter 13, verse 1, this is one of those rare instances in which the copyists have neglected to put the proper numerals into this verse. And so it, it's unclear as to how old Saul was. Now, that, that doesn't really affect the story at all, does it? In fact, there are instances in this, in, in God's word, it doesn't mean that God's word is not an error. And in fact, these instances affect 1% of the words found in the Bible. Okay, so there are some of those errors, and there's always a footnote. If you notice in your ESV uh, translation today, there's always a footnote whenever one of those discrepancies occurs. So you can be confident that the word your hand, you're holding in your hand right now is the inerrant, living, and active word of God. So we don't know how old Saul was, but we know how many soldiers he had. In verse 2 it says, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. He had more than enough soldiers. So he, he sent some, he had a surplus of soldiers, so he sent them home. Verse 3 says, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And so you're probably thinking, well, Ted, I thought this was a story about failure. It sounds like a, a success. Um, Jonathan, Saul's son, defeated a garrison of, of, of Philistines. And the interesting thing about these three chapters is although they are failures on Saul's part, that all the failures happen in the context of incredible success. You see, we can look successful on the outside, but on the inside be a complete failure. We can be successful in what ultimately doesn't really matter, but fail in the thing that matters the most. And that's what's going to happen with Saul here. So Jonathan defeats a garrison, but then there's going to be a counterattack. The Philistines are upset that Jonathan won that battle. Look at verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude, a lot more than just a garrison of soldiers. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes, in rocks and in tombs. I hope there weren't any bodies in there. And cisterns. Verse 7, And some Hebrews caught, crossed the fords of the Jordan in the land of Gad and Gilead. So some people were hiding, some people are running away. And the people that were still with, their, with him, it says, Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Everyone is afraid. You see, the, one of the reasons why the people wanted a king in the first place was so, so that they could stop being afraid all the time. They were afraid of all of their enemies, and they thought if we only had a king to fight for us, then we would be afraid. You see, we're searching, jot this down, we're searching for a king to rescue us from our fears. But, but Saul fails in rescuing the people from their fears because here's Saul, he's the king, but everyone who's with him is trembling. He's not instilling confidence or courage among the people. And Saul himself is frightened. So he can't deliver the people 
from our fears. Do you ever notice that when you think about failure, it's often connected with fear? One of the reasons why we often fail is because we're afraid something will happen to us. And so often, fear of failure leads to more failure. We're so afraid to fail that we end up failing. And then this is what happens to Saul. In verse 8 he says, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. That, that isn't recorded in the Bible, but it must have been some sort of conversation where Samuel had with Saul. Hey, calm down. I'll be there in a week. Okay, we'll have a sacrifice. The last time uh, Samuel sacrificed uh, among the army, God sent, God sent a, a big thunder and scared all the Philistines away. So Samuel said, just relax. It's going to be fine. Just take seven days. I'll be there in a week. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Notice this, verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. When did Samuel come? He came on the seventh day when he said he was going to come. When did he come? As soon as Saul had taken matters into his own hands. Here's something I've learned about the Lord. He's never late. Never late, but he's rarely early. And we want so badly for him to be early, don't we? And that's why fear and anxiety so often grips us, is we just, we want the answers now. We want to know about it now. We, we've been journeying with, with a number of people in our congregation with a number of different health uh, crises um, over the past little while, and I've found that, that one of the hardest times, whether the person ends up being sick or not being sick, is that time in which the tests have been made, but then you're waiting for the follow-up appointment for when the, when the test results are going to be revealed. It's that, it's that season of waiting. Loved ones, we need to understand, waiting is war. It's in the waiting where Satan wants to tempt us to try to take matters into our own hands. Saul was not a Levite. He was not a priest. He should not be making a sacrifice. But he's waiting. He's seeing the people scattering. He's afraid. And out of that fear, he does something. He fails. But how was he going to respond? Remember, how we respond to failure is absolutely crucial. Verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? What have you done? Saul says, I saw that the people were scattering from me, he blames the people, and that you did not come within the days appointed, he blames Samuel, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. So he, he blames three people other than himself. He doesn't take ownership and see, loved ones, every time when we fail, we're given an opportunity to respond. How will you respond to failure? I want to share with you something that I learned from Pastor James McDonald that I've adapted a little bit here. That when we sin, there are two paths that we can take. The first path, the best path, is to take responsibility for your action. This story could have gone a lot different if Saul had just said, I did the wrong thing and it's my fault. But Saul instead chose the other path, the path of rationalization. Well, it's more complicated, you see, and I've got a couple of excuses, and here's a couple of people to blame. And Saul ended up taking that path. 
Verse 12, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me in Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. And so these are the consequences for his actions. Saul here is a lot like Adam. He was given a clear command and broke it. And then he tried to blame someone else for why he did it. And then his dominion or his kingship was taken from him. That's exactly what happened to Adam. That's exactly what is happening to Saul here. And then it says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart there in the middle of verse 14. That's talking about David, a man after God's own heart. It's not talking about David's heart. You see, Saul was the king the people wanted. Saul means asked for. He's the king they asked for. He's the king after the people's heart. But David was going to be a king after God's heart because God's heart was ultimately not just even for King David, although he's a picture of the ultimate king after God's heart, who is Jesus, our Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So Saul failed. He made an offering when he shouldn't have, and because he was afraid. But loved ones, there's still a battle that needs to be fought. And, and how, is, how is Saul going to respond? There's still all the Philistines haven't gone away. Uh, Saul making the sacrifice did, had, did not have the same effect as Samuel making the sacrifice. So here's what Saul does. Look at chapter 14, verse 2. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah. He's not, in the, he's not in the heart of it. He's not in the middle with his people. No, he's staying in the, in the outskirts. And then it says that he was in the pomegranate cave. What's Saul doing right now? He's hiding. Remember when Saul was first appointed as king? He was hiding among the baggage. Now he's hiding in the pomegranate cave. He's hot he, because he's afraid. And his, his fear is rooted in, in something else. It's rooted in self-centeredness. We are searching for a king who will rescue us from our fears, but also, loved ones, to rescue us from our self-centeredness. Saul was fine with the soldiers sort of being at the heart of it, but he was out on the outskirts. He was, he was I'm just going to look after myself here and hide in the caves. And his self-centeredness was really just a reflection of everyone else's self-centeredness. Remember, there were people, they had fled across the river. There were other people who were hiding in tombs and cisterns. Saul's a king after the people's heart. They were hiding and self-serving and self-centered. And so was Saul. And loved ones, so are we. So prone to look after our own interests and think, well, how does this affect me? And, and how can I protect myself? So Saul was self-centered. His son Jonathan, not so much. Look at verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan wasn't centered on himself. He was centered on the kingdom of God and defending his people. And he was centered not on his own ability, but God's ability, that nothing can hinder him. So he says in... He says in, in, in verse 8, 
behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. Now, so he's giving up the element of surprise. They know for sure, there's only two of them, so they're for sure outnumbered. And then he, then he says in verse 9, If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign for us. Not only do they give up the element of surprise, but Jonathan is intending on fighting an uphill battle, which is never a good idea. He's at an incredible strategic disadvantage here. So verse 11, so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. That's where Saul is right now, hiding in a hole. Verse 12, and the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and the armor bearer and said, come up to us and we'll show you a thing. We'll teach you a lesson. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. Verse 14, and at that first strike which Jonathan, his armor bearer, made, killed about 20 men. So this incredible act of valor. Two guys taking on 20. But in the grand scheme of things, that the Philistines have soldiers like sand on the sea. It seems like, like a drop in the bucket. Okay, so 20 soldiers are defeated. But what about all the rest of them? But here's the thing. Sometimes God calls us to do something that's so hard for us. And one of the ways the enemy or our flesh tries to discourage us from falling through is it seems so small. For, and I'm still even so, what, what's the point in light of the, in light of the bigger picture? More than, I know I should share my faith, and I, I know, and I know I, my neighbor is, has asked me a couple of questions. I should share the gospel with them. But I mean, there's, there's like six billion people on planet Earth. What difference will it actually make? Well, here's the amazing thing. You see, when, when we take an act of courageous obedience like Jonathan did, God multiplies it. Look at verse 15. And there was a panic in the camp and in the field and among all the people. The garrison... And even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked. Who sent the earthquake? It sure wasn't Jonathan. You see, Jonathan did this seemingly small thing, even though it was really big for him. But then God shows up and sent an earthquake. And then it says, and it became a very great panic. There's a footnote in my Bible that says another way to read that would be it was a panic from God. We step out in faith and do something that seems so small and yet God multiplies it into such a glorious and amazing thing. Not only that, look at verse 21. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned. So, so now the traitors who were fighting on, the, they, were, they were from the nation of Israel, but they were fighting for the Philistines. They saw what Jonathan did. They saw the earthquake and then they turn around and double cross the Philistines. Not only that, not only the traitors, but also the cowards. Look at verse 22. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard. And so this one act of courage changed everything. God used Jonathan's act. It was, it was such a huge deal for Jonathan, but it seemed like such a small drop in the bucket. 
But then God used it. Listen, God may be calling you to do something, to speak up about something in your family, at your workplace, or among your friends, and you feel like, I'm the only one. You're almost never the only one. There's people hiding in caves. There's people who seem like they're on the side of the enemy, and they're just waiting for someone to start it. That's what Jonathan did. He just started it. God affirmed it. So many other people then joined in. So then even Saul gets involved. The whole army fights. Verse 23 says, The Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. But then Saul in his self-centeredness. Again, this is success. Things are going well. And again, it's centered around Jonathan, not Saul. Verse 24, When the men of Israel had been hard-pressed, That day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged of my enemies. Notice notice whose enemies Saul thinks the Philistines are? Not the enemies of God, not the enemies of the people of God. Saul is self-centered until I am avenged of my enemies. And he lays down this ridiculous command to all of his troops. To go on a fast while they're fighting. Now, I've never been engaged in hand-to-hand combat. That's not something I've, I've experienced in my life. But I'm assuming that you burn a lot of calories while you're doing that. And refueling and having some food would actually be a wise thing to, to have provisions for your army while they're battling. But Saul, for whatever reason, while he's hiding out in the cave says, yeah, no one's allowed to eat until I am avenged of my enemies. So in verse 26, it says, when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was was dropping. They lived in the land flowing with milk and honey. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Saul didn't lead by inspiring people. No, he led by making them afraid. Verse 27, but Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. And the people confront Jonathan saying, what are you, know, what are you, what are you doing? We're not, we're not supposed to eat. And Jonathan responds in verse 29, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Again, even though Saul's succeeding, he's also failing. This inflicting a fast on his soldiers made it so that the defeat wasn't as great as it could have been. Verse 31 says, they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. Yeah, because they hadn't eaten. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Verse 33, then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. Why was it sinful to eat with the blood. Genesis chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, this is God speaking to Noah, saying, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, but you shall not eat flesh with its life 
that is its blood. It's further explained in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 14. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. There's an association between life and blood. And the blood of an animal, there was a certain reverence for the blood of an animal or of a human being. And they were not allowed to eat animals that still had, that if the flesh had blood in it. But they were so hungry because of Saul's made up command that they broke God's eternal command. You see, the significance of life and blood, I mean, that, that, that points forward to the cross, the whole sacrificial system and the importance of the blood. And we talk about Christ's blood that was shed for us. That's Christ's life that was given for us. And we need, this is a good lesson for us as parents, as leaders, as employers, as bosses. Being overly strict like Saul was, can produce temporary restraint like it did for the army. But as soon as the opportunity presents itself, it can often lead into a worse sin that you were trying to prevent in the first place. So Saul knows the battle hasn't been great. The people have broken the law. In verse 30. Uh, 6, it says, Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. So let's start the battle again. Verse 37 says, Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. And Saul said, Come here, all of you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. This has got to be someone else's fault. I'm going to rationalize this one away too. Verse, 20, verse 39, then he's, he's, he's just on a rant. He says, For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. Verse 40. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. Or if this guilt is in your people, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people had escaped. Urim and Thuman, it was kind of like rolling dice. There, were, there was two rocks that were kept in the, the breastplate of, of the, the breastpiece of the a priest. And uh, each rock had sort of a, a dark side and a light side. And a, a yes side and a no side. And if, 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 if both came up yes, then it was a yes. If both came up no, then it was a yo. Or you could do it between groups of uh, people, sort of like heads or tails. And, but it came up, he, he put the whole nation against him and Jonathan, and it came up that the people had escaped, and the guilt was between him and Jonathan. Verse 42, then Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. Verse 43, then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done, and Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. That's got to be the most ridiculous sounding confession. I tasted some honey. 
Here I am, I will die. Who would ever act on a confession like that? Well, someone like Saul, someone like us. Verse 44, Saul said, go and do, God, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. So self-centered that he was, he, he was and, and so afraid of losing face. He, he, he failed by making the army fast. And now, rather than admitting that that was a failure, rather than admitting that he had sinned, that he had done something wrong, now he's willing to protect his own name, to kill his own son. Thankfully, the people intervene. In verse 45, the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Jonathan was the one charging up the hill when you were hiding in the cave. We can't let him die. And so Saul spares his son. We're searching for a king, loved ones, a king who can rescue us from our fear, who can save us from our self-centeredness. As ridiculous as Saul sounds to us, we need to understand that we are so often like him, so often hiding and protecting ourselves, so often looking for someone else to blame, so often when we sin, rather than taking responsibility, giving in to rationalization. And when you give in to rationalization to try to explain away your sin, that inevitably promotes repetition. And then repetition leads to more sin, which leads to more rationalization. And you get caught in this cycle. And that's exactly where Saul was. And then the last turn of the cycle is found in chapter 15. And this is a difficult uh, passage. Um, and so I appreciate your attention on this third point. We are searching for a king to rescue us from our excuses. Searching for a king to rescue us from our excuses. Chapter 15, verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman and child and infant and ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, this is a very extreme instruction that God is giving to completely wipe out every living thing among the Amalekites. This is what God was telling Saul to do. He references an event in the past. He says, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel. And what he's referencing there is, is described in Exodus chapter 17. It says that Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. This was the first battle that the people of Israel ever fought after, after escaping from Egypt. The Amalekites are the original enemies of the people of God. And this is the story where Moses went up on the hill and whenever he lifted up his hands, then Joshua and the army were winning. But when his hands got tired, then the Amalekites would win. And so people were holding up his hands. Do you remember that story? After the battle is won, it says, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the years of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So God said that was, it was 400 years before, before Saul. God had already said that this was going to 
happen. More detail is given in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you. So there's details about the battle. Amalek didn't fight fair. It was guerrilla warfare. They were attacking the, the weak ones who were lagging behind. Therefore, when the Lord God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And some of us are thinking, okay, but there's, that happened 400 years ago. And, and how can the present day Amalekites pay the penalty for something that, that happened multiple generations before? Well, listen, God is patient. And he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. And, and unfortunately for the Amalekites, it kept getting worse and worse and worse. In the book of Numbers, when the people are first entering into the promised land, then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them. And then in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, the king of Eglon gathered himself, Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. In the story of Gideon, Judges chapter 6, for whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. Generation after generation, year after year, the Amalekites were hardened to the people of God and the purposes of God. God is patient. He doesn't wish that any should perish. He could have wiped out the Amalekites at first at the, when Moses was living. Multiple opportunities for repentance. But then some of us are still struck. But I mean, it talks about children. It talks about everything. How, is, how, is, how could God command that? Well, we need to understand that this is... This is something that happened in, in the city of Jericho. This is what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Loved ones, this is what happened to the whole planet during the flood. Yeah, but I, I understand that, but that's, that's, that's Old Testament. They were sort of more barbaric back then, but we're sort of, we live in the New Testament. Well, loved ones, we, we don't simply look back to the flood. We look, we look ahead in what the book of Revelation describes is far worse than anything that happened in Jericho or Sodom and Gomorrah or Noah's flood. The, the instruction to wipe out the Amalekites should heighten in us the seriousness of sin. You want to talk about failure. Our greatest failure would be to underestimate how serious sin is. It, it's, it's that serious that this entire nation is going to be wiped out. It's that serious that the entire globe was under a worldwide flood. It's that serious that people will cower in fear and run and hide themselves for the wrath of the Lamb when Christ returns. Sin is serious. And again, God is patient and we are in that season right now where God is being patient with us before he punishes sin once and for all. So Saul, verse 7, 
Not seeing the significance of this, it says in verse 7, he went out on the mission. He saw the feet of the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. Look down at verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good. Apparently they didn't mind killing all the people, but they wanted to keep all the animals for themselves. See, one of the reasons why God said wipe out everything was that it wasn't to be a battle that was to somehow benefit the nation of Israel or benefit Saul. It was supposed to be an act of judgment. So there was no, there was, there was no benefit to those who carried it out. But Saul and the people wanted a benefit. Verse 10 says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. You know, it's okay sometimes to be angry with the Lord, to cry out to him. I mean, Samuel, he doesn't understand. God says he, he, he regrets that he had made Saul king. And Samuel's crying out to the Lord saying, why did you give the people what they wanted? Verse 12 and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on. So Saul, Saul he's missing the point here. Saul said, now would be a good time to build a statue of me. So self-centered, making it about himself. See, Saul did not understand the seriousness of the sin of the Amalekites. And unfortunately, as we continue to read, Saul did not understand the seriousness, not just of the Amalekites, but the seriousness of his own sin. Verse 13, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So Saul comes at him with all this flowery, spiritual-sounding language. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Blessed be you. He's in complete denial. He's, he's, verse 14, Samuel said, uh, What then is, the, is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, notice this, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep. Look back at verse 9. It says, Saul and the people spared. But here's some revisionist history. Oh, they did it. The people did it. He's right back in the same cycle. He, is, he has sinned. He's rationalizing. And, and he's, he, he's repeating again. It's the same old story. There's someone else to blame. So Saul's going on and on. The, the, the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen and the sacrifice. And look at verse 16. Then Samuel said, stop. God is speaking to some of us today and all of our excuses and all of our reasons and this is who you should blame and it's more complicated than it seems and well, yeah, I know I kind of messed up but it's not really my fault and God is saying, stop. Own it. Yes, there were other people involved. Yes, you might have been let down. Yes, you might have had a hard upbringing. Yes, there might have been multiple other factors. Yes, it is complicated but own your part. So Saul hears from Samuel just the simple word, stop. But Saul won't stop. He just keeps going on and on and on. 
Verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoils? Samuel's trying to, Samuel cares about Saul. He's saying, why did you do this? Verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Full out denial. I have gone on the mission which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Verse 21, but the people, but the people, it was their fault. It's not my fault. Then Samuel says, has the Lord, and he, he tries to sort of justify it by saying, well, we're going to make this big sacrifice to God, which wasn't described earlier when they were actually plundering the Amalekites, but now he's saying, oh, this was, we're actually, this is all going to be a big sacrifice. And then Samuel says in verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Saul had an issue with sacrifice. In chapter 13, he, he, he took the sacrifice into his own hands when that was Samuel's role. Now he's, he's taking something that should have been destroyed on the spot and saying, Oh, no, no, it's, it's a sacrifice. We can have a ritual that will somehow make this all better. And some of us, I'm afraid, are thinking that it doesn't matter how I'm living Monday to Saturday. I go to church on Sunday, and that's got to mean something. I mean, hardly anyone goes to church anymore, but here I am. God says, stop. To obey is better than sacrifice. By all means, go to church, but you, that doesn't let you, let you off the hook the other six days of the week. Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption, as iniquity and idolatry. He says, what you've done, even though you're doing it in the name of God, it's as though you're bowing down before idols. He says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also rejected you from being king. So Saul, recognizing this isn't going well, verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. So he starts reading from the script. This is what I think I'm supposed to say. I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people. Again, there's a little caveat. This is why I did it, because I feared the people. The people are still, um, it's still their fault, kind of, and obeyed their voice. Verse 25, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. And, and Saul knew that if Samuel walks away, if the people see Samuel walking away from me, then that's going to be a threat to my kingship. So it says that Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel, in verse 28, said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. He's talking about David. And we're going to learn about David as the year goes on, as we continue to study 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. The question is, was David really better than Saul? Was David somehow exempt from failure? No, in some ways, David failed in some very significant, different way from Saul, but very serious ways. Ways like adultery, ways like murder. But he's described as being better. Why was David better? Because David did not go when, when he was convicted over a sin with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. He didn't rationalize. He took responsibility. He wrote Psalm 51 that said against you and you only have I sinned. 
And if we're going to be people after God's own heart, we need to be people who take responsibility for our sin. Verse 29, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people. What does Saul really want? He really he wants the honor. You see, when we, when we are truly taking responsibility for our sin, all we care about is the fact that we've sinned against God. It doesn't matter what happens to our reputation. But Saul is trying to somehow patch things together. If I say I'm sorry, maybe Samuel will stay, and then the people will still honor me. Verse 31, so Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so, you, so, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Elderly, geriatric Samuel. Gruesomely finishes what Saul refused to finish. Verse 35, then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Verse 35, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. That's a scary thing because here's why. Samuel represents the word of God. Samuel is a prophet. He speaks. He, he, he's, he's, he's the leader. He's the one who's supposed to guide and give direction. He's supposed to speak from God to Saul. And do you see what's happening here? Samuel was no longer going to see Saul. God was no longer going to speak to Saul. Saul had gone down this rationalization repetition, and now it's leading to ruin. God had been speaking to Saul so clearly for so long, and Saul continually, rather than taking responsibility, hardened his heart so that God's like, I'm not going to talk anymore. May that not be true of any of us. We're rather than taking our sin as seriously as we ought to, for God to say, I'm not even going to bother. I'm not going to waste my breath because it's simply falling on deaf ears. It says, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Three times here it uses the word regret. Back in uh, verse 11, it's a, God told Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king, and then here in verse 35, it says, the Lord regretted. But then in verse 29, it says, the Lord does not lie or have regret. He's not a man that he should have regret. So it says that God is regretting, but then in, right in the middle there, it says that he, he can't regret. But it says he doesn't, he doesn't regret like a man. He doesn't, he's not whimsical. He doesn't change his mind. He's not like Samuel. Samuel was like, I'm going. And Saul's like, please stay. He's like, no, I'm going. And he tears the robe. And no, I'm going. And then Samuel eventually says, okay. God's not like that. God doesn't just change his mind on a, on a whim. He doesn't regret like a man. When we regret, we regret because we know we've done something wrong. And we try to make it right. God's never done anything wrong. So what does it mean for, for, for it to say twice there that the Lord regretted? Well, it's kind of like when you go to a, like a funeral, you know, a coworker or a friend, you might not even know the situation. What's the first thing you say when you go to the funeral home at the visitation? You put your hand on your friend's shoulder and you say, I'm so sorry. 
When you say, I'm so sorry, are you taking responsibility? Did, did you kill their love? No. You might not even know them, but you are, you're experiencing the sorrow of the moment. You are, li- you are trying your best to enter into the moment that that person is going through right now. So you say, I'm so sorry. And sometimes we think that because, listen, plan A was always David and the Lion of Judah. And sometimes we think that because God knows the future and he knew that Saul would fail in these ways, that somehow God's not emotionally affected. But the Bible goes to great pains to describe in numerous places how God feels when we sin. And this is one of those instances. God is experiencing sorrow and regret. Loved ones, he experienced sorrow over Saul's sin. He experienced sorrow over the sin for 400 years of the Amalekites. He experienced sorrow over my sin and your sin. Because none of us truly understand that to obey, to obey is better than sacrifice. Only one, only one ever truly got it. And he's the king that we're searching for. It's Jesus Christ. He was the one who fully obeyed. And the amazing thing about Christ's obedience is that his obedience led to a sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Christ obeyed and he was the sacrifice. Philippians 2 verse 7 says, He became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And when we see the cross, just like the destruction of the Amalekite shows us the seriousness of our sin, the suffering of the Son of God should show us the seriousness of our sin, which causes us to take responsibility for what we've done, that we played a part. And from that responsibility then comes repentance, a desire to turn away from our sin and to do what's right. And then from repentance comes the opportunity for renewal, for restoration for rejoicing because Christ has made it possible for us to forgive because we failed in the area of obedience we failed in the area of sacrifice but Christ was completely obedient and made that ultimate sacrifice for us so today loved ones no more excuses no more rationalization let's own our sin and let's walk in obedience and repentance in light of the sacrifice that was made for us. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, this has been a difficult message to give. I know it's been a difficult message to receive, Lord. But God, I pray, Lord, especially for those who are on the edge, who have done something or who are about to do something and have rationalized it in their mind and made their excuses, Lord, I pray that your spirit would invade them right now. That you would search them and know them, Lord, that your word would cut through like a sword, God. The thoughts and intentions of our hearts, that that we would be laid bare before you, Lord. And that we would walk in true responsibility for our sin and repentance of our sin so that we can be restored into a right relationship with you. God, for those of us who need to make that decision for the first time, I pray that we would not leave without admitting that we're sinners and believing that Christ died for us and committing to following him as Lord. For those of us who are followers but know that we have wandered, I pray that we would flee to you 
I pray that we would come to the cross and marvel that Christ, the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, left his throne to come and to bear that crown of thorns for us. So help us, we pray. Help us to respond rightly, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.